And I see. All right, well, let's begin. Welcome to Sunday School. Good to be here with you. Good to be here. That's right, you can wave to me and I can wave right back, not even through a screen, because yes, I'm right here in the flesh. Uh, good semester at seminary, but good to be back visiting here on the East Coast. It's very different from what we were just experiencing. It was in the 80s when we left, and it was below 40 when we came, so, and we've had snow several times. I'm kind of glad about that, but it has been a bit of an adjustment for us, but still, I'm really glad to be here with you. We are continuing to study Jesus' death and resurrection as we move through the Bible chronologically, and today our lesson title is God's Plan Unfolds. What are we really talking about today? Well, we're focusing on the trials that led up to Jesus' crucifixion. This is... Uh, courtroom scenes are always intense, dramatic, but this is the most dramatic in history. This is the par excellence courtroom drama. The Son of God is being put on trial. And what happens to the Son of God is exactly the opposite of what any of us would ever want to happen to us if we were to go to court. But it is exactly what we needed to have happen and what God planned to happen so that we might be saved. We're going to look at that. We're going to see... Uh, what we can learn from how Jesus responded to those trials as we investigate various texts in the different Gospels today. Let's pray before we continue. My God, my great God, oh God, thank you for this word. Thank you for salvation in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for his willingness, his strength, his power to endure. Lord, what was just so horrific even in these trials, Lord, injustice beyond what we can imagine. But he did it, he did it willingly, and he did it for us. I pray, God, that we would see the greatness of that this morning, and that you would help me to be able to explain it. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, the way we're going to proceed in class today is a little different than we do normally. Normally, we focus on one or two main texts. But today, we're actually going to look at several different texts, comparing what each of the Gospels have to say and piecing together the different accounts to see all the trials that Jesus goes through. Because we talk about Jesus being put on trial, the Son of God being put on trial, but actually it happens several times. You could even say it happens six times. Six different trials that Jesus goes through before he is crucified. And that means that we have a lot of text to investigate. Not every trial is recorded in each one of the Gospels, so we're piecing it together. I say six trials. Some people would say it's just two trials with three phases each, but we're going to go with six trials. And the reason we're we're looking at the different gospel accounts is so that we can establish a timeline of these trials and how they all relate to one another. As we investigate the different texts today, though, I want you to pay attention to a couple of things. We won't be able to do our level of detailed observations that we would normally, but I want you to pay attention to some things as we look at the different trials that Jesus endured. First, who's putting Jesus on trial? Pay attention to that. Second, when and where is it happening? If there are details in the text that tell us. Then, are there elements of mistrial? And what are they? Fourth, what's the verdict that they come to? And five, how does Jesus react? How does Jesus react to the trial? How does he react to the verdict? We start with our first trial, and it is the first Jewish trial. We're going to actually see we have three Jewish trials and three Gentile trials. Our first Jewish trial is in John chapter 18. So please open your Bibles. Turn to John 18. Using the Pew Bible, it's page 1082. John 18, we're going to read verses 12 to 14. Skip over the section about Peter, because we'll come back to that next week. And then, or the next time we have Sunday school. And then we'll look at verses 19 to 23 in the same chapter. Remember the context. It's exactly what we talked about last time in Sunday school. Jesus just finished his Passover meal with his disciples. He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives. He was praying to the Father. The people came out to arrest him. He demonstrated his power by not only causing them all to fall down when he just said the word, I am, but also by healing the servant of the high priest's ear when Peter uh, sliced it off with his sword. So he demonstrated his power. He's been put under arrest. And now we see the first Jewish trial. So, verse 12, John 18. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Jump down to verse 19. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. All right, let's observe those details I I wanted us to pay attention to. Where are we? When are we? We're in the middle of the night, and we're in Annas' residence. Who's, uh, Who's putting Jesus on trial? It is Annas. Who's Annas? Yeah, Troy. Former high priest. Good. So you have some, uh, some background knowledge here. It says here he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. And yet when we get down to verse 19, it's not Caiaphas who's talking to Jesus here. It's Annas. The trial with Caiaphas comes later. Annas is referred to, the high, referred to as the high priest. What? What's going on? because he was the former high priest of the Jews, but he was removed from his position by Rome. Still, many Jews considered him to be high priest, just kind of unofficially, informal. And he certainly had a connection to the, to the current high priest, Caiaphas, because he was a father-in-law. So Annas, the unofficial high priest, is the one putting Jesus on trial here. Do you notice any illegal happenings with this trial? What's one of them? It's at night. It's happening at night, and it's secret. This is against the Jewish law. It is against the law of the Sanhedrin. Trials were to be done at daytime and in public so that there could be no funny business. They could be, they could be observed. They could be verified. But this trial is done at night and done in secret. What else is illegal? There's no charge. Okay, so this is kind of a, a, a funky trial in that... Um, there's no charge. The, the one questioning him seems to be searching for a charge. He's looking for, um, he's asking Jesus about his teaching. He's asking Jesus about his disciples. There's no charge here. What else? Okay, so uh, along the lines of what we were saying before, this is a private trial, secret at night. It's in a home, not in the, in the assembly of the Sanhedrin as it ought to be. There's some other things here that are happening that we might not recognize as being actually illegal, but this effort to get Jesus to say something that incriminates him, that's actually illegal. The Sanhedrin, the law, Jewish law, the, the laws of the Sanhedrin, it's illegal to try to force a person to incriminate himself. And even if that person confesses to, to, to doing a crime, you cannot put him to death on the basis of his own confession. Crimes needed witnesses to prove their guilt. They needed evidence. But there is no evidence here. In fact, the high priest Annas seems to be trying to solicit some sort of confession from Jesus. And it's for that reason that Jesus asks him, why are you asking me questions? Bring forth some witnesses. That's the way you ought to do things. And of course, also illegal for someone to strike Jesus without cause. Actually, Jesus was just pointing out that they're not following the proper procedure. They're doing what's illegal, but this onlooker, this attendant, he strikes Jesus. And that's because, really, this this trial has decided Jesus' guilt. Before there's even been a, a charge given, and before there's even been a verdict. So at the end of this trial, there is no official verdict. There's no crime even declared, but Jesus' guilt is presumed. This is the first trial doesn't go exactly the way Annas may have hoped, and it leads to our second Jewish trial. And for this one, we need to actually go to the book of Matthew. So turn over to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we're looking at verses 57 to 68. So our first trial with Annas, middle of the night, private. Now verse 57 in Matthew 26. Let's see what happens here. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. 
Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. High priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? All right. Second trial here. When are we? Still during the night. Where are we? We're at another residence. Who's putting Jesus on trial? Heard someone whisper it. It is Caiaphas. Okay, how do we get from Annas' place to Caiaphas' place? Well, the Bible's not explicit as to how close these residences were. Some have inferred that they actually, their residences were right next to each other. It was part of the same complex. That's why it says that Jesus was in the court of the high priest. That seems to be where he hangs out during both of these trials. It's possible that they had a residence together, Annas and Caiaphas. After all, they were related by marriage. There's some, some sort of big complex and, and two buildings. So they just take Jesus from one to the other, and now we're in Caiaphas' residence. Caiaphas is putting him on trial, but there are some members of the Sanhedrin there. There are some high priests, and some members of the council, or another way to refer to that as the Sanhedrin. Any illegal happenings in this trial? There are. What's an example? Yeah, Roy. Okay, the witnesses are inconsistent in their testimony. You may notice the one that's quoted. He said, I'm able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's not what Jesus said. What did Jesus actually say? He told the religious leaders, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. I'll raise it up in three days. And it says he's referring to the temple of his body. But they didn't understand. They thought he was talking about the building. So inconsistent witness testimony, which shows some funny business. What else? We could say something more, um, more drastic when it comes to witnesses. Our narrator tells us it's not just that they, the witnesses are confused. What are they? They're false. They're false witnesses. And not just one or two, many Many false witnesses were brought forward, specifically so that they could find something to condemn Jesus with. Now, according to the law, according to the law of Moses, what is the penalty for being a false witness? First of all, we know that the Ten Commandments specifically prohibit being a false witness against your neighbor. This is a pretty fundamental aspect of God's law that's being violated. Rob, what were you going to say? That's exactly it. If you were found to be a false witness, in fact, let me quote the text for you. Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 and 19. Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 and 19 says, The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if, a, if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Based on the law, what do the false witnesses deserve that falsely accuse Jesus? Death. They all deserve to die. It is a very serious thing that they are doing because they are accusing Jesus of a capital crime so that he will die. And they're accusing him falsely. This is a huge injustice. This is a huge illegal happening in this trial. And it's happening over and over again. We could add the same sort of abuses that were happening in the previous trial. This is a secret night trial again in a private residence. That's a violation of Jewish law. They're trying to force a person to self-incriminate. That's a violation of Jewish law. 
Jesus does make a confession, and on that confession they condemn him to death. That is illegal according to Jewish law. You cannot put someone to death for based on his own confession. We could add other things. This is an improper voting procedure. Sanhedrin had a specific way that they cast votes whenever somebody was decided to be guilty or not. Here it's just, a, just asking aloud for people to say what, what should be done to Jesus. More basically, there's the condemning of an innocent man. That's illegal. That's in, unjust. Roy, what were you going to say? Yeah, you're exactly right, Roy. The Sanhedrin put its rules together to protect those who were brought before the court. It was actually the presumption of innocence. There are all sorts of laws in it when it comes to how the Sanhedrin conducted itself to protect from mistrial, to protect people from just being um, pronounced guilty and killed too quickly. We're going to, I'll mention it now, I was going to mention it later. But according to the law of the Sanhedrin, if a man was condemned to death, He could not be put to death the same day. You had to wait at least two more days. He had to be put to death three days later so that if there was any funny business in the trials, it could be identified and could be dealt with. Or if if people were just moved by emotion and then thought about it later and they said, you know what, I, I really shouldn't have condemned that person, they could change their minds. And the person would not be put to death on the third day. And when the person was put to death, Um, It was done in a very sober way, and those who were the witnesses against him were the ones who were to cast the first stone. He was to be put to death by stoning. That that would be the law um, when it comes to Jesus' particular crime. So you're absolutely right, Roy. There is a hurriedness to these trials that just causes them to violate every sort of rule that was supposed to protect those who were brought before the Sanhedrin. It's because they really want Jesus to die. Even though he's innocent, they really want him to die. Some other aspects of this trial are are heinous, even though they're not technically illegal in a a judicial sense. The high priest hypocritically tears his robes. Oh, I'm just so struck by this blasphemy. I'm so moved, so grieved. I've just got to tear these robes. Of course, what is he trying to do? Murder an innocent person. He adjures Jesus to confess. I adjure you by the living God. He appeals to God with this oath hypocritically. And then after Jesus is pronounced guilty by the council, they all mock him. Mock him even about his ability to prophesy. Now here we do have a verdict. And the verdict is he's guilty. For what crime? Blasphemy. He is blasphemed against God. And that is a crime according to the Mosaic law. Leviticus 24.16 Leviticus 24.16 says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall, cer- shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he- shall he be put to death. But was Jesus blaspheming? They asked him if he was Messiah. He said yes. He said, I'm going to come in glory. And they said, you're blaspheming. No, he was telling the truth. He was telling the truth, an amazing truth. I'm the Messiah that Israel's been waiting for. But they were not willing to accept that. Nor were they willing to consider all the evidence that Jesus had been presenting throughout his ministry about him being Messiah, about him being God. Even at his arrest, he was presenting evidence. They would not accept it. Now, did Jesus have to confess that he was Messiah to them? What's interesting is that he was asked this same question before. John chapter 10 actually records some members of the Jewish elite coming to Jesus, and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us whether you're the Christ. And he does not answer them directly. He says, look at my works. Look at what I do. It should be obvious. But this time, when asked to tell them plainly, he does. What's the difference? He knew that doing so would give them an excuse to put him to death. He knew that even asking him to confess this and to incriminate himself was illegal. But he chose to do it. Why?
Why would Jesus choose to do something that he doesn't have to and he knows it will lead to his death? Well, certainly it is, it is a gracious act from the Lord where he gives them the truth, gives them an opportunity to repent. And surely maybe even some of the people in the Sanhedrin repented. We, we know Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin and he appears to, or he seems to have come to know the Lord. But this is because he knows He's got a mission to accomplish. It's like he said to Peter in the garden when Peter tried to draw a sword and prevent the people from arresting him. He, he says, put your sword back into its sheath. The cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus says, I know this will lead to my death, but that's the way it must happen. Therefore, I'm willing. I'm willing to confess. I'm willing to make the confession because it will fulfill God's plan. It will fulfill the Father's plan for the salvation of many. This is a really interesting aspect of the way that Jesus answers the, the, the high priest Caiaphas and those members of the Sanhedrin who are with him. He quotes Daniel 7. He could have just said, yeah, I'm the Messiah. But he was emphatic about it. He says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Now remember, that comes from Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Just to, I'll reread those verses to you. Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel had this vision. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and it was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Why does Jesus quote this to them? He says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's an aspect of gracious warning in that, again, as you were saying before, he was manifesting the truth. I am the Messiah, and by the way, I am going to come with glory. Pay attention to what you're doing. But what else does it show about Jesus' attitude? It's a pretty terrible thing that's happening to him, right? But he is confident. He's totally confident. He's totally unfazed. He's even able to declare this prophecy and say, look, it's still going to come to pass. Though you, you humiliate me, I will be glorified. Though you condemn me wrongly, God will vindicate me. And though you judge me now, I will one day be your judge. This is indeed a sobering word to the Sanhedrin. Or not the Sanhedrin, the, the certain members of the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas who was there. And it is an expression of the total confidence that Jesus has in God's plan and in God's vindication. So the unofficial verdict has been decided in the second Jewish trial. But we need an official trial with at least some semblance of legality if we're going to protect the members of the religious elite from mob action. Because remember, Jesus is still popular among the, pre the people. He has lots of messianic expectation. We need one more Jewish trial. And we find it in Luke. Look at Luke chapter 22. Some people equate these last two trials, but I don't think you can do that because right after our passage in Matthew 26, it says, now when morning came, and talks about them getting together again. We hear about what happened when they got together again in Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 66 to 71. So starting in 66 in Luke 22, this is the third Jewish trial. This is what Luke says. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. It's almost like they're going through the motions of the last trial, right? You see many of the same things repeated. Now, when is this one taking place? Day. They've waited today, which is in accordance with Jewish law. It's supposed to be tried in the day. And notice where they are. Council the Sanhedrin. 
okay, now we're going to go through at least the motions of what the law requires. This is probably at dawn, as soon as they could get all the Sanhedrin assembled and they could say, we're doing things legally. Who's judging Jesus? The Sanhedrin. What our translation says, the council of the elders. But we, the, another name for it is the Sanhedrin. This is made up of three primary groups. The elders of the people, that's kind of like the secular leaders. The Sadducees, they would have been the chief priests. And the Pharisees, the scribes, the, religious, or the, the noted rabbis, they, they are present as well. So elders, Sadducees, the chief priests, and the Pharisees, the scribes and rabbis, they've convened. Now, Jesus is probably appearing before them already looking abused based on what happened to him in the night, the way they treated him after the second trial. And Jesus answers them similarly as he did before, but he also confesses to them, I am the Messiah and Son of God, and I will be seated at the right hand of power. We see the same sort of illegal happenings here in this trial as before, though not as many. The guilt was already determined before the trial began. Resort to self-incrimination. Determination, well, actually not stated here, but we'll see later. Determination of death based on his own confession. Again, those things are illegal. And not willing to let Jesus point out what they were doing was wrong. He says, if I ask you a question, you won't answer me. If I say, look, are you supposed to be doing this? They won't, they won't answer him. Just like he did in the first trial when he asked uh, Annas, why do you question me? There was no reply except a fist. Verdict from this trial, Jesus is guilty. So, from these three different trials, every element of Jewish leadership and governance is agreed. Jesus is guilty and must die. He has committed blasphemy. Why is it that they wanted to put Jesus to death? It's not really about their zeal for God. They were jealous of him. Why? Okay, so I think you're hitting on a different aspect of it, but both those things are true. First, they were jealous of him and his popularity among the people. But also they have a concern about their position. You remember one of the words from Caiaphas in, in the Gospels, he says, rebuking his fellow members of the, of the religious elite, look at what you were doing. This man is going out and all, all Israel's following after him. If we keep letting him go like this, the Romans will come and then take away both our place and our nation. It's better for one man to die than to have the whole nation perish. They believed that the following that Jesus was creating was going to result in a rebellion or at least some sort of destabilization of society so that the Romans would act, and they would act in such a way that would cause the uh, Sanhedrin, the chief priests, and the scribes and other religious leaders to lose their positions of power. They worked hard to, to obtain those positions of political and economic dominance. They didn't want to lose that. They also didn't like that Jesus was making them look bad in public. I mean, he showed them up in the temple when they were asking him all these questions, trying to discredit him. And you know, one of the things that Jesus did all the time, every time he saw the Pharisees, he just showed them how hypocritical they were. He says, you are lauded by the people for your righteousness, but you are whitewashed tombs. You are so evil on the inside. They didn't like that, as you could understand. And they wanted to stop feeling bad about what Jesus' teaching actually said about them. They didn't like being convicted by Jesus' words, being told that they violated God's law. So for multiple reasons, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. But the most basic reason is the one that John tells us. Remember in John's gospel in the very beginning, why does he say Jesus was ultimately rejected and killed? That's right. The men hated the light because they are of darkness. And they don't like the light shining upon them because their deeds are evil. That's what it comes down to. Darkness hates the light. And that's what these men were. They were men of darkness. It's really what we all are before Jesus saves us. And they hated the light. And it was Satan working through them to oppose God. You could say all those things. But don't miss the point. They had something that they wanted that they thought Jesus was an obstacle to. And therefore, they want to get rid of him. But they don't stone him. Why don't they stone him? 
They can't, at least officially, because the right of capital punishment was removed from the people, and it was you had to have it approval from the Romans. So they're going to have to have the Romans be the ones who execute Jesus, which of course is important, because that has something to do with Jesus fulfilling the word of God. This is not to say that they wouldn't be willing to lynch Jesus or lynch some of his followers at other times. We know Stephen is stoned. They try to stone Paul. But they don't do that with Jesus, probably because it would start a riot. You just lynch Jesus. There's a whole lot of people who have been expecting the Messiah to to do something that are going to be upset. This is part of fulfilling prophecy. Because what did Jesus say? Son of man must be lifted up like what? Like the serpent in the wilderness. That all those who look to him might be saved. And what did the Old Testament say about a person who hangs on a tree? cursed of God. He had to show, I'm taking the curse. I will take the curse for those who believe in me. So he couldn't be stoned. He had to be crucified. And that, of course, is the extreme humility of the son, right? That is the worst form of execution. Painful, humiliating, slow. And that's what the son of God submitted himself to. So we move past the three Jewish trials. We need Gentile affirmation if we're going to get this man put to death. And so Jesus now appears before a Gentile to be put on trial. Look at, actually it comes right next in our passage. Look at Luke 23, where we see the first Gentile trial. Luke 23, verses 1 to 7. Right after they have determined in the Sanhedrin Jesus is guilty, then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. All right, trial number four, first Gentile trial. Who's trying Jesus? Pilate, Pontius Pilate, Roman governor of the province of Judea. Where is this happening? Another one of the gospel accounts tell us in the praetorium. That would be where the governor has set up his temporary residence. Normally, Pilate would not be in Jerusalem. He would be over in uh, Caesarea, closer to the coast of the Mediterranean, much more Gentile city. But it's Passover, tons of people in Jerusalem with messianic expectations. That's a little dangerous. So that's why the Roman governor comes with a whole bunch of soldiers to keep the peace, make sure the orders. Um, being established. This is probably early morning. According to Mark, Mark says something kind of funny in his gospel. He says Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which would be about 9 a.m., but Luke says that Jesus was crucified at the sixth hour, which would be noon, and he would remain on the cross till three. So why is Mark saying nine? Probably because the process bringing about Jesus' crucifixion begins at nine. So that is, he's brought before Pilate, it begins his Roman trial at 9 o'clock. So this is probably early morning, 9 o'clock. They bring, uh, they bring Jesus to the praetorium to Pontius Pilate. Now, what crimes is Jesus accused of committing? A couple of them here. Refusing taxes to Caesar. Did you say something else? Claim to be king. What else? stirring at the people, and misleading our nation. What seems strange about these charges based on the Jewish trials we just witnessed? Yeah, that's not what they condemned him for in the Jewish trials. It's strange that those things should change. What else is strange about these charges? Are they true? They're not true, and even the one that seems like it is true is not true in the way that they're making it out to be. Is Jesus, is Jesus misleading the nation? No, he's leading the nation in the right way. But from the Pharisees' perspective and the Sanhedrin's perspective, they don't like what he's doing. 
Is he forbidding taxes to Caesar? No, that's an outright lie. He actually said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But they made it up because they wanted him to look bad. Does he claim to be a Messiah and king? He does. But by saying this to Pilate, they're trying to make him out to be a rebel. He's competing for your rule. He's trying to be a rebel against you. And they say he's stirring up the people. Well, not in the way that they make it out to be. He's not stirring them up against Rome. He's stirring, stirring them up against a false system, however, with his teaching. But Pete, when asked if Jesus is indeed king, king of the Jews, Jesus answers point blank. It is as you say. He's willing to confess it to Pilate as well. Interestingly, though, what's Pilate's verdict? Not guilty. Even if he's a king who competes with you, Pilate? Not guilty. Interesting. So we have some legalities and illegalities in this trial, not really from Pilate, from the Jews, false charges, different charges from what they said before, lying, false testimony. But Pilate says not guilty. The thing is, though, the Jewish leaders and the crowds with them are insistent. And so when Pilate learns that Jesus is from Galilee, he sends him over to Herod. Ugh, that might be a nice way to get rid of this headache. Let Herod deal with it. So even though he was declared not guilty in trial number one of the Gentiles, there are more trials to come. Let's look at Gentile trial number two, also in Luke. Luke 23, verses 8 to 12. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. It's kind of a strange trial. Who's judging Jesus here? Herod. Remember, there are a lot of Herods in the Bible. This is Herod Antipas, son one of the sons of Herod the Great. He ruled in Galilee. Now Herod is hoping Jesus would do some kind of special sign. Remember, this Herod is the one who killed John the Baptist. He actually thought Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. And that's why he was able to do the signs. But Jesus doesn't do any signs. In fact, Jesus doesn't even say anything. Lots of accusations from the Jews. We don't hear what they are. I'm sure it's more false testimony. Jesus doesn't answer. So Herod, not getting what he wanted, he decides to have a little fun. Mocks Jesus gives him a gorgeous robe, sends him back to Pilate. What's the verdict? It's not clear here, but Pilate will tell us later on what's Herod's verdict. Maybe you already know. Herod decides he's also not guilty. We'll hear that straight from Pilate's own lips in just a moment. But Pilate says, first trial, not guilty. Herod says, second trial, not guilty. But he sends him back to Pilate. And this is where we get the last trial of Jesus. They're a Gentile trial, last of the six. And it's also here in Luke. Luke 23, verses 13 to 25. Okay, 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod. See, there it is. For he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out altogether, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced the sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man that they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Very interesting outcome to all these trials. Who's trying Jesus in this last one? 
against Pilate again. And what's his verdict? Not guilty. He's innocent. He even wants to release Jesus. But before he does that, he says, I will do what? And then release him. I will punish him. What? That doesn't make any sense. How is that just? If he's innocent, don't punish him. Why would he punish him? What were you going to say, Roy? Yeah. Yeah. He figures, look, this guy's not guilty, but I know you really don't like him, so I'll punish him, but I'm not going to put him to death. Now, what kind of punishment does Pilate have in mind? The other gospel tells us it's scourging. Remember what that is? Multi-lashed whip that might have bone on the end. Very, very painful. Sometimes rips the skin open, or can rip the skin open. He intends to do that to Jesus, just so that you guys get a little, you know, satisfied, get your bloodlust satisfied, and then I'll let him go. He really is innocent. But that's not what the crowd wants. That's not what the Jews want. So then he comes up with another plan. Hmm, I have this custom. We don't hear it fully explained here in John, but Matthew and Mark fill in the details. I'll read to you what Matthew says. Matthew 27, verses 15 to 18. Matthew 27, 15 to 18. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At the time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. Now this seems like a clever way to get Jesus released. Satisfy the Jews that, yes, he really is a bad person, and yes, he deserves punishment, but hey, I have this reprieve custom that I can do. And uh, given the choices, wouldn't you rather have Jesus released? Barabbas is a notorious prisoner, murderer, not a nice guy. It shouldn't be a hard decision, guys. Jesus or this despicable murderer? Well, the choice backfired. This proposal backfires hard. And Pilate can't believe it. Because whom did they choose? Barabbas. What? He asked them, why? What crime has Jesus committed? Or actually, no, let me say this first. He says, what do you want me to do with Jesus then? And they say, crucify him. He can't believe it. They choose the despicable guy over the one who hasn't really committed any crime, and they want the one who's innocent to be crucified. He can't understand it. Why? What evil has he done? Multiple times, Pilate pronounces Jesus innocent. But ultimately, he commands him to be executed. Now that's a pretty obvious perversion of justice. If you went to a court today for somebody being accused of capital crime to say, not guilty, but he's going to be executed. That just doesn't make sense. What kind of messed up justice system is this? Why did Pilate do it? He knew he was innocent. Why did he do it? He was afraid of the people. He was afraid of what the anger of releasing Jesus would do. It ultimately is peer pressure. That's another way to say it. He didn't want to start a riot. Not only because, well, riots are kind of dangerous. You don't know what's going to happen. But he's got the Roman cohort. So, I mean, he could put down a riot. But it's not going to look good to the people back in Rome. And he's got this nice job as a governor, and if he wants to keep it, he needs to keep things orderly. You don't want to hear, people in Rome don't want to hear, oh, there was a riot in Judea. Did you hear? That's not going to look good on Pilate's record. He wants to keep his position. So, doing the right thing, releasing an innocent man, even the Son of God, proved inconvenient to Pilate. Make a mistake. Uh, Roy. Yeah. 
That's true, and it's useful that you bring those up, though I think that would actually work against Jesus being executed. Because if somebody claims to be God, and he really is a God, even if he's not God of the universe, remember Romans believed in many gods, you don't want to get on that God's bad side. And having nothing to do with Jesus might actually mean don't put him to death. Make sure that you don't misjudge him. So I would say that's all the more reason for Pilate not to put Jesus to death. What were you going to say? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't that kind of kind of like gracious of the Lord? Like giving all these like different ways for Pilate to know, look, you really should release him. Like he's the son of God. They say he's the son of God. Your wife just had this dream. Like shouldn't you do the right thing? But it ultimately came down to he had things that he wanted and he was afraid that releasing Jesus would cause him to lose those things. And the supreme irony is he ended up losing them anyways. Pilate was later replaced as governor. This didn't work, but he thought it would. He perhaps may have consoled himself by saying, I tried to release Jesus, but they, they just didn't want it. And I'm not willing to go through with the follow-up cost. The Son of God, release of the Son of God, proved inconvenient to Pilate. And really, Pilate's decision and the Sanhedrin's decision are motivated by the same, the same heart. The people following the lead, Gentile people, Jewish people following the lead of their rulers, they see Jesus, they see God as an unwelcome obstacle to getting and keeping what they really want. Sanhedrin wants to keep their position. Pilate wants to keep his position. And people want to keep their leaders happy. So rather and loving and fearing God, they loved and feared the things and people of the world. If Jesus is in the way and he can't simply be ignored, he has to be removed. Now Pilate says, I wash my hands of this. And Jews say, his blood be on us and on our children. But could Pilate really wash his hands? No, Jesus tells him, John's gospel, I believe it's John. He who hands me over to you has the greater sin. Implied in that, you have sin too. He couldn't wash his hands of it. No one can wash their hands of what they do with Jesus. But it's the Jewish reaction that was particularly heinous because who is Jesus? He's their Messiah. He's their king. In fact, in John's gospel, the way it all transpires before Pilate he, he, he asked the crowd, do you want me to crucify your king? And the chief priests answer, we have no king but Caesar. Your religious leaders say that? But in a way, it's fitting. Because that is really what they believed. They don't want God as king. They don't want Messiah as king. They would rather themselves or at least a human. One of their own. So looking at these passages as a whole, looking at these six trials, what are some things that we learn? First of all, Jesus' trials were a total mockery of justice. He violated so many rules. John MacArthur and his two sermons on these passages, I think he actually went through Matthew. He says this was the most unjust trial, the most unjust conviction in the history of the world. I think he's right. And if this happened, and it did, what does this show us about man? If man did this to God's son, what is man? He is so evil. He is so dark. Remember the parable Jesus told? The parable of the the vineyard owners, where he says, there's this guy, he has a vineyard, he leaves, he puts some tenants in, front, uh, in charge of it, and then he asks for some fruit of the vineyard by sending various servants to them. 
But every time he sends a servant, they just beat him up, they mistreat him, and sometimes they even kill the servants. But finally he says, I will send them my son. Surely they will respect my son. But when the son came, they said, let's kill him and take the inheritance for ourselves. The worst kind of offense, the worst kind of a crime. You refuse the son? It shows man's evil heart. Before you say, wait a second, that was just those men, not all men. But we'll come back to that. The trials are a mockery of justice. We also see that Jesus was supremely confident and righteous through it all. He didn't retaliate when struck. He didn't retaliate when mocked. He was righteous through it all. He pointed out evil, but he never responded to evil with evil. Why? He knew God's plan. He was waiting for God's vindication. Now, who could do this? Who could endure all this perfectly? Perfectly confident, perfectly righteous. Only God's Messiah. Only the Son of God. Here again, we see the deep humility and love of Jesus. Love for his Father. Love for us. He endured all of this. Because this is what our salvation required. This was the beginning of the cup that Jesus said, I must drink. The cup of wrath that is deserved to you. But I will drink it. Now those that condemned Jesus would have to face the music one day. For some, it would be by repentance. In Acts 2, Peter tells the people, you crucified the Son of God. And they said, you're right. What do we do? He said, repent, and you'll be saved. But for others who do not repent, they will face Jesus' own judgment when they see him after they die or when Jesus comes back to the earth. Jesus had all the reason for confidence. That's another thing that we see here. In all this, Jesus was perfectly fulfilling God's necessary salvation plan and the words of the prophets and his own word. Jesus told his disciples again and again before these things happened that they would happen. For instance, Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. On the third day, he will be raised up. It's exactly as Jesus said it would happen. And it's also exactly as Isaiah said it would happen. Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8. Isaiah 53, 7 to 8. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? was all according to God's plan. Man was still responsible for the dreadful crime and would be judged accordingly. But everything proceeded exactly as God planned it. Let's talk some application just for a moment. If you had been there, and if God's spirit had not interceded in your life, how would you have responded to Jesus on trial? There's a way we'd like to answer this question. It's easy to say and to think, oh, I would have vindicated him. I wouldn't have pronounced him guilty. But that is wishful thinking. And we know that it's wishful thinking. We know actually that we would have condemned him. How do we know that? Because we do the same thing in our own lives today. When we sin. Before we were saved and we lived our own way, we had rejected Jesus' kingship over our lives. The same way that Pilate and the Sanhedrin had. All sin, you see, is an ignoring and a rejecting of Jesus' rightful rule. We sin because we love something more than Jesus. And Jesus is getting in the way. So, really, we are just performing in our own way, in our own version, the same thing that the Sanhedrin and Pilate were performing outright. In essence, our sinful hearts 
testify agreement with those who put Jesus to death. They say, yes, crucify him. Let's get rid of the one reminding us of what we owe God. Let's get rid of the one making us feel bad all the time. Let's get rid of the one who's really inconvenient so we can just go after our own lusts and idols in peace. We would have done the same thing as those who literally condemned him because that's what our hearts did before we came to know Jesus. That's why I say the trials of Jesus are testimony to the evilness of all men, not just those who were actually there, because our hearts testify the same way as those who killed him or those who condemned him. That's how sick our hearts are. Praise the Lord. As we saw last week, he has inaugurated a new covenant that gives us new hearts, that forgives even this horrific betrayal, not only for those who were there, but for those who agreed with those who were there, which is why we can be saved. A new covenant is a covenant of mercy inaugurated in Jesus. He opens our eyes, gives us new hearts, grants us repentance and faith, causes us to love Jesus, causes us to be obedient, and gives us joy and eternal life. That's marvelous. If, you, if that's your state, if God has done that for you, then rejoice. Thank the Lord. Live worthily. What a great salvation he's accomplished. That level of injustice and betrayal, and it's all forgiven, and he's given you a new heart and caused you to love him. That's amazing. If you've not yet trusted Christ in that way, I pray that you do. Jesus came to suffer for sinful rebels like you. But if you believe in Jesus as Lord, Savior, God, you will be saved. One other question. How is Jesus' attitude during these trials instructive for us as his followers? Is there any application of his attitude? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, Roy. It is instructive because it shows us how we ought to walk. But we say, oh, I can never do that. Well, don't forget, the power that was in Jesus that allowed him to do that is also in you. And Jesus perfectly made use of that. He walked uh, by the Spirit. He t- totally trusted in the Father. Those of us who have been saved can do that. We won't do it perfectly. But that same Spirit is inside of us so that we can have the same confidence That's why Jesus says, expect persecution, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to confess me or suffer for me. Don't respond to evil with evil. Love in the face of hate. Act for the greater good and for God's glory because God will vindicate you. Believe, trust, God will vindicate you. That's why Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 12 to 16, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. If God vindicated Jesus, glorified him, he will vindicate us. And we trust him. That's it for today. Next time we have Sunday school, we're going to rewind a little bit and talk about Peter's denials, but also Jesus' restoration of Peter. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for this time to behold the glory of your Son and all that he endured so willingly and so gladly to accomplish your plan and to save us. Lord, we are so grateful for your love to us. You love us genuinely, deeply, abundantly, generously, far more than we could ever believe. And you've told us about it in your word. Lord, thank you for such a great salvation. And we pray, God, that we would appreciate it as we ought to, and we would live worthily of it. In Jesus' name, amen.